I'm delighted that you've made it your decision to be here tonight, and I hope you've brought your Bible with you and eager to study with us as we talk about things that have to do with serving God and going to heaven in the after a while. The elders have asked that I speak on things that are first principle in their nature, and that we've been doing each time in this series. Tonight we're going to be talking about the question, will only those in the Church of Christ be saved? Tomorrow night we'll talk about the conversion of the 3,000 based on Acts chapter 2. And I would encourage you to read that entire chapter before tomorrow night. That'll enhance your study. And then on Thursday evening, we'll talk about grace, faith, and works. And then on Friday evening, we'll close by talking about the new birth. Those who are members of the Church of Christ frequently face the statement that says, those in the Church of Christ think they are the only ones that go to heaven. Sometimes that comes in the form of a question where you might be asked, is it true that those in the church of Christ think they are the only ones that are going to heaven? Sometimes it comes in the form of a statement or maybe a charge, as if to say, here is what's wrong with the church of Christ. They are the ones who think they're the only ones going to heaven. You may have faced that even when inviting someone to this gospel meeting. And you tell them, would you come and attend with us over here at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ? Oh, I know about y'all. Y'all are one of those groups that think you're the only ones that are going to heaven. Sometimes it comes in the form of a joke. In the sense that someone will tell us that someone dies and they go to heaven. And as they're being ushered through giving a tour of heaven, they're passing by a certain room and they're told to be quiet because those in that room are from the Church of Christ. And they think they're the only ones here and everybody laughs. Well, whether it's in the form of a question, a charge, or a statement, or a joke, it deserves an answer, and a biblical answer at that. And that is the question we're going to seek to answer tonight and give a biblical answer to the question is, must one be a member of the Church of Christ in order to be saved? It deserves a Bible answer. You may not be a member of the Church of Christ, and you may have that question on your mind. Is that what these folks think? Do they think they're the only ones that are going to heaven? But I'm more interested in what not what these folks think, but what does the Bible teach on the question? And we're going to seek to give a Bible answer. Or maybe you're a little skeptical about the church of Christ because you've heard the statement made, they're the only ones that think they're going to heaven. And we're going to seek to answer that question in our study tonight. So let's talk tonight about, will only those in the church of Christ be saved? There are three things I want us to notice in our study tonight. I want us to come to an understanding of the question. Why is that question asked? What is that question designed to do? And secondly, I want us to come to an understanding of the answer to the question. And thirdly, we'll try to come to an understanding of what that answer demands of us. So let's begin our study by talking about the coming to an understanding of what the question is. Why is that question asked? What is it designed to do? So why is it that people ask that question in the first place? Why is it that people come and they ask you, is it true that only those in the church of Christ will be saved? Why are the jokes that are told and why is the charge often made? Well, one of the things I want to suggest to you is people ask that question because they have a denominational view of the church of our Lord. When I say a denominational view, that is they view the church as nothing but a denomination, one of many different churches. And here is a picture of denominationalism. We will talk about this several times tonight. This larger shaded area represents God's people, the saved. And in the concept of denominationalism, 
the idea of God saved are divided into various segments, various groups, various flavors, if you please. And so here are some of God's people that might be Adventists. Some of them might be Nazarenes. Some of them might be Catholics. Some of them might be Presbyterians. Some of them Church of God. Some of them in the Church of Christ. Some Baptists and some Methodists. And that's the beginning of the sampling of thousands of different churches. And so the idea is that God's people are divided into various segments. And into various churches. And if you answer the question, yes, you must be in the church of Christ in order to be saved, when someone has this concept in their mind, that's like saying you have to eat a particular food, a particular brand food in order to be healthy. And they can't fathom that. That's like telling someone you can only eat Kroger food or you can't be healthy. You can't buy any other brand food. That, that's, that's, I can't imagine that. And so someone who has this concept of the New Testament church, or God's people divided into various segments, and this is just one of many different flavors of God's people, they have a hard time answering the question in their mind. Secondly, that question is often asked because of prejudice. That is, it's made sometimes as a prejudicial charge. It's driven by the fact that some are prejudiced against the church and the things for which it stands. And by prejudice, I'm simply talking about they have prejudged and already determined what they're going to believe about the church of Christ based upon what they have heard. You may have faced that at times. That, oh, yes, y'all are those that believe you're the only ones going to heaven. When you invite someone, when you talk to them about Bible study. Look, isn't it, aren't you one of those church of Christers? Yeah, y'all are the ones that think you're the only ones going to heaven. And that's driven by prejudice. In Proverbs 18 and in verse 3, 13 says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. That is, judging the matter before the evidence is in. But I'm just trying to analyze why is that question asked. Here's a third reason it's asked. Because of ignorance. Let me define ignorance. That is not a reflection on someone's intelligence. But it is a matter of something that they do not know. All of us, no matter how intelligent you may be, there's something you don't know. And there are some who do not know what the New Testament church is. They don't understand the nature of the church. They do not understand what the Bible teaches about the church. They haven't been taught. Maybe we have failed in teaching others. Whatever the case may be, they're just unlearned on what the New Testament church is. And because of that lack of understanding they have, they are wondering about this question, how could it be that only those in a particular church are those that are going to be saved? Now I know a little bit about why that question would be asked. Secondly, or continuing this, still understanding the question, let's talk about what that question does. What that question is designed to do. First of all, in that, I want to suggest to you that it is designed to put you in a dilemma. And you have perhaps felt that dilemma when someone asks you the question, will only those in the church of Christ be saved? You felt this dilemma. That is, if you answer that question, you say, no, 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 I don't, no that's not what we're trying to say. You have a dilemma because that's hard to harmonize with what you teach. And after all, that's not the truth. But if you say yes, the person is turned off to further teaching. And you know that's about to happen. And furthermore, that confirms their prejudice. And so you're put in a dilemma. And we'll talk about that more in just a few moments of how we're often put in a dilemma. It's the idea of being, of being put in this concept of I, I'm hard pressed to answer either way. 
Because if I say, no, that's not the truth, but if I say, yes, that's about to kill the study I'm trying to have, and I'm going to turn them off to further study, now how do I answer that? What do I do? We'll say more about that in just a moment. We're still trying to develop the thought of what it does. It charges us with narrow-mindedness. When someone says, oh, y'all are that group that thinks you're the only one going to heaven, it is a charge of narrow-mindedness. We're living in a society that is very broad-minded and liberal. This is the day of postmodernism. The very idea of being an extremist who would believe such things, that there would only be a certain group of people that's going to heaven, would put you in the class of being like a bigot or a chauvinist or a racist or a sexist. You're an extremist if you believe such things. And it is a charge of narrow-mindedness. Furthermore, it is designed to create prejudice. Now, keep in mind, it was driven from prejudice, but often the question is asked because it is designed to create prejudice. Among those who hear the question, or those who hear the charge, or those who may be waiting for an answer. It causes some people to be turned off to a further study of the truth. I don't know if some of the other preachers present tonight have experienced this, but I have, and I'm sure they probably have too. That right in the middle of a home Bible study where you have two non-Christians... One seems to be grasping, and you think they're about to grasp this and get to the point. It looks like they're understanding, and they're about ready to obey the gospel. And here's the other one, not quite interested yet, and a little turned off. About the time you think you're about ready to make the point, they're ready to obey the gospel. Oh, by the way, I've been meaning to ask. Aren't you all the group that thinks you're the only ones going to heaven? You see what they're designed to do? You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to kill the study for someone else. They're trying to create prejudice on the part of the one who's about to learn the truth. Who's about to respond to the gospel. Now I have an understanding of why this question is asked. And let me go back just for a moment to say that it's asked because of this denominational concept. Sometimes because of prejudice. Sometimes because they just don't know. But it's trying to put us in a dilemma. Charge us with narrow-mindedness. And sometimes create prejudice. I now have a better understanding of the question that's being asked. It's a good question though. And I'm more interested in this. Let's come to an understanding of the answer to that question. How would we answer that question? Let's begin with this. Let's define what we're talking about. Let's define the term church. Because it may be that when you answer the question to someone and you just give them a blunt answer, they're thinking of the term church in one sense and you're thinking in an entirely different sense and you're not communicating at all. So let's define what the church is. The church has reference to people who are saved. That is the definition of the New Testament church. Let's start first of all with people. That ought to be obvious. But there are some who may not have the concept that the church involves people. So let's turn to Acts 8 and in verse 3. In Acts 8 and verse 3, we're going to see the church was made up of men and women. The church is made up of people. This is talking about the work of Paul in making havoc of the church. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. How did he do that? Entering into every house, dragging off men and women. What he did to men and women was what he did to the church. So the church was made up of men and women. That ought to be obvious. So the church is people. But it's not just any people. The church is those who are saved. This is an important foundation we have to lay to answer our question. Let's try to come to an understanding of what the church is. And then we'll come back to whether or not one must be a member of the church of Christ. What is the church? It is people who are in a saved relationship. 
So let's open our Bibles to passages that we may know very well. Let's start with Acts 2 and in verse 47. In Acts 2 and verse 47, we'll talk about this passage more in detail, the context at least thereof, in our study tomorrow night. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church. Who do you add to the church? Added to the church daily, those who are being saved. So those who are being saved were added to the church. Who's put in the church? It's those who are saved. Who are the saved? It's those who are put in the church. Who makes up the church? It's those who are saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The saved and the church are one in the same, Acts 2 and in verse 47. Let's give further evidence of that. That very text, Acts 2, 47, when it uses this term church, it comes from the word ekklesia. And you say, I don't know anything about Greek. You probably know more about Greek than you think you do. Let's talk about this word ekklesia, what it means. It is a compound word, ek meaning out of. Say, I don't know anything about that. Have you ever seen a sign that says exit? Same root word. It means to go out, out of. Klesia means to call. And so it simply means those who have been called out. So let's go to the New Testament and see about those who are called out. Paul told the Thessalonians, you were called by the gospel. That's how we're called. In other words, the gospel plea of what people must do, what they must believe, and how they should respond, they're called by the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, the entire chapter is devoted to making this point that they have been called out of sin into salvation, and that is what made up the church of which Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter, the whole book for that matter. Chapter 5 says, I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. So the entire chapter is devoted to, to the fact they're called out of sin into salvation, Ephesians 2. 1 Peter 2, 9, they're called out of darkness into light. So those who are no longer in sin, no longer in darkness, but they're now saved because they've listened to the gospel are those who are the called out. That describes people who are saved. But let's give further evidence. Let's go back where we were the other evening in our studies and look at Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, last night... We were looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 16. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 16. We talked last evening about the blood of Jesus Christ. Here is one of those passages. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, having put to enmity the death. Well, what do you see? Well, look at verse 16 again. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body. Where are men reconciled? They're reconciled in the one body. What about those who are in the one body? They are those who are reconciled. The church and the saved indeed are one and the same. Same book. Now I'll remind you, chapter 5, same book says this message or this book is Paul's great essay on the church. Paul said, I speak concerning Christ in the church, verse 32. But back up to verse 23. Speaking of Christ, he is the Savior of the body. Whom does he promise to save? Those in the body. What does he say about those in the body? He promises to save them. So that tells me what I saw in these other passages, that the church and the saved are one and the same. But if you haven't looked at any other passage with us tonight, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 11. There is an interesting flow of thought in Acts chapter 11 about people becoming New Testament Christians. So I encourage you to get your Bible open, turn to Acts chapter 11, and I want us to begin about verse 19 in Acts chapter 11. 
In Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19, there arose... There were those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, and they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, verse 20. If you're so disposed to underline, you might underline a section in verse, in some of these verses. Look at verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Serene, and when they had came to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. You might underline, preaching the Lord Jesus. What were they doing? They heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus there. Someone said, that's what we need today is more preaching of the Lord Jesus. I say, amen. We need to preach the Lord Jesus, don't we? That's exactly what they were preaching. They went everywhere preaching the Lord Jesus. Now what happened when they preached the Lord Jesus? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them in a great number. Now you might underline, believed and turned to the Lord. There is something about the preaching of the Lord Jesus that caused them to believe and turn to the Lord. If we stopped at that juncture, wouldn't you think they're, they're obedient to the gospel? They didn't just believe, but the text says they turned to the Lord. That sounds like people who are in a saved relationship, doesn't it? How do you turn to the Lord without being saved? How could you be saved without turning to the Lord? But let's go a little bit further. The news of this... The news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. I'm reading at verse 22. And they sent out Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. And when he had came, are you reading with me now at verse 23? And had seen the grace of God. You ever seen any grace of God? How on earth do you see the grace of God? Could somebody reach in their pocket and say, let me, let me show you. I got some grace right here. Let me, let me. No, you don't pull it out of your pocket. It's not something tangible. He saw the effect of the grace of God. He saw they had received the grace of God. How they received the grace of God? They heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus, and they believed and turned to the Lord and had received the grace of God. That sounds like people who are saved, doesn't it? But we're not through. We're not through. Let's keep reading. Well, at verse 23, when he'd seen the grace of God, he was encouraged. For he was a good man, verse 24, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Then Barnabas departed, verse 25, to Tarsus to seek for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church. What church? I want to know what church. Where did that church come from? Do you remember reading anything about a church at Antioch up to this point? You say, oh, yeah, we've read all about the church. Up to this point, where have you read about a church at Antioch? Where'd you read about that? Go back to Acts chapter 1 and read all the way up to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 26. And tell me where you read anything about a church at Antioch. Where'd the church come from? They assembled with the church. Where'd the church come from? I'll tell you where it came from. They heard the preaching of the Lord Jesus and believed and turned to the Lord and received the grace of God. And those were the people who made up the church at Antioch. What else does he call? Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples. You see, those who were disciples are the same people who are in the church. They're the same people who had received the grace of God and believed turned to the Lord. What were the disciples called? They were called Christians first at Antioch. What I'm trying to demonstrate to you is the same people who are Christians are the same people who are in the church, and the same people who are in the church are the same ones who received the grace of God. That's the same ones who believed and turned to the Lord and the same ones who were disciples. And someone asked, must one be a a member of the church in order to be saved? 
based on this passage, that's like asking, must one be a Christian in order to be saved? Must one be a disciple to be saved? Must he receive the grace of God to be saved? Must he believe and turn to the Lord to be saved? What I'm trying to demonstrate to you is those who are in the church are the same ones who are disciples, who are the same ones who are Christians, who are the same ones who turn to the Lord, who are the same ones who receive the grace of God. Back to the point we're making. What we're making is that the church is people who are saved. But let's add another point to that. The terms of entrance are the same. If you got out a sheet of paper and you perused through your New Testament and said, I'm going to find everything the New Testament says that I must do in order to be saved, and you write it all down. Now I'm going to peruse through the New Testament and find out what it is I have to do to enter the church, and I'll write it all down. When you get through, they're the same list, aren't they? The terms of entrance are the same. What I have to do to be saved is the same thing I have to do to enter the church. And if that be the case, then the church and the saved indeed are one and the same. But let's go a step further. We're still coming to an understanding of the answer. We've established what the church is. It is people who are in a saved relationship with God. Let's consider the Bible teaches that there is one church. There are three things I want you to see about this. Watch for the three. Number one, when we talk about there being one church, I want you to understand that Jesus only promised one church. Jesus only promised one church. Jesus never promised that he would build his churches, but he only promised one. Here's what he said. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, singular in number. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When Jesus was making his promise about building a church, he only promised to build one. Upon this rock I will build my church. That's point one. I said there are three. Here's point two. Point two is, Paul said there is just one church. Let's see what he said. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 4 and verse 4. Paul said there is one body. How many bodies, Paul? O-N-E, one. There's just one. What do you mean by body, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, let's let him define that for us. Let's not let a lexicographer define that or a commentator define that. Let's let the author himself, by inspiration, define what he means by body. Look at chapter 1, same book, same book, same author, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. Are you reading with me? To the church. What do you mean by that? Which is his body. Colossians 1 comes in the other direction, talks about the body which is the church. Paul said, there is one body. Ephesians 4 verse 4. Same book says the body is the church. The conclusion is there is one church. Jesus only promised one. And Paul said there is just one. He said there are three principles. Here's the third. The third principle is that the Bible is silent about churches. Now I know the Bible talks about local churches, such as a church at Antioch, a church at Jerusalem. A church at Corinth, a church at Thessalonica, a church at Rome, seven churches of Asia. I understand that. But the Bible does not talk about churches, such as the Church of Christ and the Baptist Church and the Nazarene Church and the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, the Outreach Church, etc., etc., etc. Consider that there is no passage that says anything about churches or denominations. The Bible is silent. And when the Bible is silent about something, that tells us that is not God's will. Remember that from our study on Sunday evening? 
If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. If I stand before you tonight saying there are many churches, I need to put my finger on the passage and show you where the Bible talks about churches and denominations. But if I stand before you tonight telling you there is one body, I need to cite the verse that says there is one body, Ephesians 4, 4. We saw from Hebrews chapter 7 and in verse 14 that when the Lord spoke nothing, then one is not at liberty to function. That concerning of the tribe of Judah, the Lord spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And if Jesus were on earth, he could not be a priest. If churches are in the Bible, we want to know where the passage is. But let's go a step further. Let's consider that denominationalism is wrong. You begin to see a picture developing. The Bible defines the church as as those people who are saved. The Bible says there is one church. And this whole concept of denominationalism is foreign to the scriptures. Let's define denominationalism first. When we talk about denominationalism, the American Heritage Dictionary says that means the act of naming, the name or designation, the name of a class or a group. Some in this audience are not old enough to remember the day when you would go to the bank. Many of you can remember the day that you'd take a $100 check to the bank to cash and the teller would ask you, nowadays they ask you something like, you want large bills or small bills? There was the day in which they would ask you, what denomination? They weren't asking you what church you were of. Had nothing to do with religion. Why did they use that term with reference to banking? That was because money was divided into various denominations. Those were called denominations. The one, the five, the ten, the twenty, the fifty, and the hundreds. Those were denominations. Now there are three things implied by that. I want you to watch these three carefully. Number one, that implies there's division within money. Suppose, just for a moment, that the only currency we had, we have no coins, we have no fives, tens, twenties. The only thing we have is a $1 bill. That's the only form of currency we have. And you take a $100 check to the bank and you cash it, and they ask you, what denomination? You know what you're going to say? Well, duh, the only thing we have, there's only one, I guess, $1 bills, because that's all there is. There is nothing else. The fact that they would ask you what denomination implies that there is division. We have ones, we have fives, we have tens, we have twenties, we have fifties, and we have hundreds and on down the line. There's a second thing that was implied. One is as good as another. That doesn't mean a one is equal to a hundred, but the, the denomination is equal. In other words, which would you rather have? One one hundred or a hundred ones or twenty fives or, or two fifties or ten tens? Which would you rather have? If you owe me $100, I'll take it any way you'll give it to me. Anyway, you would too, wouldn't you? One group is as good as another, isn't it? And a third thing that was implied is that there are no wrong choices. Have you ever gone to the bank and you put a $100 check down and you say, I want to cash that. How do you want it? Well, I think I want it in, um, I think I want in $5 bills. And the vice president of the bank come out and just rebuke you and said, don't you ever do that in here again. We'll call the cops on you. We'll have you arrested. That's against policy. It's against the law. He doesn't do that, does he? Because there are no wrong choices. That's personal preference. You might like to have a lot of ones or just one 100 or two 50s or 10 10s or on down the line. There are no wrong choices. 
Now, let's take that same concept. If we understand that with money, let's take that same concept and apply it to churches. When we talk about denominationalism, what it implies is three things. There's division. God's people are divided into various segments. Believing and practicing and doing different things. So all of these are God's people. That's what that implies, number one. They're all divided, just like money is divided. Secondly implied, one is as good as another. What denomination are you, someone asked. In other words, what flavor are you? We're all Christians. We're all going to the same place. We're all on the same road. doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. Remember that from Sunday morning? But what flavor are you? You see, one's just as good as another. And a third thing that was implied by that is there are no wrong choices. If you decide you want to be a Presbyterian, that's not wrong. And if you want to be a Baptist instead, or you want to be an Adventist, it really doesn't make any difference if denominationalism be true. I want to list four things now of what's wrong with denominationalism. Number one, these are simple. Number one, it's just not found in the Bible. Remember, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I'm standing before you tonight affirming that there is one church. I've tried to cite book, chapter, and verse for that. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body. The body is the church, chapter 1. If someone is ready to affirm that there are multiple churches believing and practicing different things, all of which are acceptable to God, stand before us and give us the passage. Where is the passage? It's just not found in the Bible, number one. Number two, it is contrary to the pleas for unity. In John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus prayed, Concerning the disciples, those who believe on me through their word. That's me and you. I believe on the Lord through the word of the apostles. That they, that's us, may be one even as we are one. The Father and the Son didn't believe different things. They didn't teach different doctrines. That was a plea for unity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, he would that they all speak the same things and mind the same judgment. That's unity. Denominationalism implies division. Thirdly, what's wrong with denominationalism? It makes a difference what we believe in religion. I won't take the time to develop 1 Thessalonians 2. We did that in our Sunday morning study. But we saw that there was a difference in those who believe the truth that they might be saved or those who believe the lie that they might perish and be condemned. Remember that contrast? It makes a difference what you believe. Denominationalism be true, it makes no difference what you believe in religion. And the fourth thing I want to share with you is it's contrary to the idea that there is one body. Paul said there is one body. Denominationalism says, no, 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 there's many bodies. Now get the picture of what we're developing. We're trying to answer the question, must one be a member of the church of Christ in order to be saved? We've understood what the church is and there's just one. Denominationalism is wrong. Let's consider this principle. God's way is narrow. God's way, by the very nature of what truth is, is narrow. One of the problems people have in grasping the answer to the question is they cannot fathom something being as narrow as is what we're trying to describe. And I want to suggest to you that truth, by the very nature of what truth is, is narrow. When it comes to the question, what is two plus two? Any mathematician knows, any school kid knows, the answer is quite narrow. The answer, and the only answer, is four. 3.9 is pretty close, but that's not the answer. 4.1 is pretty close, but that's not the answer. The only answer is 2 plus 2 is 4. We understand that. Truth, by the nature of what truth is, is narrow. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We've alluded to this passage earlier in our studies. 
And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters deal with the Sermon on the Mount. The subject of the sermon was the kingdom. I know that from chapter 4 and 23. And so here is a sermon about the kingdom of God. And toward the end of that sermon, what we might call the invitation section of the sermon, Jesus sounds pretty narrow about that. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. God's way is narrow. Look at verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Again, I want to suggest to you that some cannot fathom the answer that we may give them concerning the question, because that seems like such a narrow view of things, such a limiting concept. That's the nature of truth. Jesus said the way was a very narrow way. Let's add another principle here. And quite often when somebody asks me that question and they can't fathom the answer, I ask them a parallel question. And a simple question at that, I might ask them, must one believe in Christ in order to be saved? I recognize there are people who don't believe that you have to believe in Christ, but generally in denominationalism, they think you have to believe in Christ in order to be saved. And when the answer, oh yes, I think you have to believe in Christ... I asked them, are you so narrow-minded that you think a Jew can't be saved? Jews don't believe in, the, in Jesus being the Son of God. And you don't think Jehovah's Witnesses can be saved? They don't believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And you don't think Muslims can be saved? They don't believe Jesus to be the Son of God. And their answer usually is something to the effect, well, 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 that's just that, that because the Bible says you have to believe in Christ. Yes, anybody who doesn't believe in Christ is going to be lost. That's just the truth. If you can understand that, why can't we understand some other principles where people are excluded? Let's go back and see what we've seen. When I understand what the church is, it is people who are saved, and there is just one. And I understand denominationalism is wrong, and God's way is narrow. And I see how we can answer this parallel question. And I wrap all that information together, the answer to the question is yes. One must be a member of the church of Christ in order to be saved. You say, how did you arrive at that? Let's go back. A defined church is being those who are saved. There is just one. We saw denominationalism is wrong. God has a very narrow way. And then we saw a parallel question. But the third thing I want to share with you tonight is coming to an understanding of what that answer demands of you. What does that answer demand of us? There are two things I want to share with you about that in the lesson of years. Number one. That answer demands that you be in the church of Christ in order to be saved. If our answer be true, it demands that you be in the church in order to be saved. Would you agree with that? If one must be in the church in order to be saved, what that answer demands of you is that you then be in the church in order to be saved. Now here's the question, listen to this carefully. How do I know? Church of Christ is the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. How do I know that? How do I know? Let's suppose you go over here to the local mall here in Murfreesboro, maybe in Nashville, and you're, just as you enter into the mall, there's a mother, young mother, that's just frantic because she's lost her little boy. 
And you, being the good Samaritan that you are, you say, well, I'll help you find your little boy. So you tear out through the mall, and you come bringing back a little boy, and you say, after all, one boy is just as good as another boy. Why not? Isn't one boy just as good as another? Seems absurd when we're looking for boys. And she says, I, I don't, no, no, one boy's not as good as another. That's not my boy. I want you to find my boy for me. No, oh, okay, 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 I'll help you. You go tearing back out through the mall and you search and you search and you come running back and you say, here's the boy that I like. I found a boy of my choice. Little boys are cute when they're this age and I like one with this color hair and I think he's just a doll and I brought him back to you. I really like this boy. No matter how much you like the boy, she's going to say, that's not my boy. Say, okay, I'm going to help you. I, I, want, I want to do, do the right thing. And you tear back out through the mall and you start taking a poll through the mall and asking what people like and you brought back the most popular boy in the mall. And you present him to her and she says, that's not my boy. Why? Why isn't she happy with that? Now, you, you see how absurd that seems when it comes to finding boys? But that's exactly how people go about finding churches. I want to find the most popular church in town. This, everybody likes this church. How could it be wrong? I want to find a church that I like. Or after all, one church is as good as another. It didn't work in finding boys. Why does it work with finding churches? You know what you're going to have to do, and you would do this at the beginning. You would go to the mother and you'd say, how do I know when I've found your boy? Tell me the identifying characteristics of your boy. And she says, my boy is 10 years old. You don't argue with her and say, you know what? I like little five-year-old boys better. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're looking for a 10-year-old boy. And she says, he's 70 pounds, 50 inches tall. His name is Tommy's hair is brown and his eyes are green. So you tear out through the mall and you come bringing back this little boy that's about 10. Maybe he's 70, 75 pounds. And you say, but his name is not Tommy. His name is Jimmy. But after all, names don't matter. Is that what you tell her? Names don't matter. And she'd say names do matter because I named mine Tommy. And that's not Tommy. A lot of names matter with boys, but it don't matter with churches. So you tear out again with list in hand. And you go find a boy that's named Tommy. But he's three years old. And you bring him back and say, after all, he's got the right name. He's got to be the right boy. I'll tell you, there's some brethren who, who went on vacation. They're looking around and say, hey, the right name over the door. It's got to be the right church. This boy's three years old. Not the right boy. You will understand. You haven't found the right boy until you found one that met every one of the characteristics. Whether you like the characteristic or not doesn't matter. He's 10 years old, 70 pounds, 50 inches tall. Name is Tommy Harris Brown and eyes are green. How do I know when I found the church you read about in the New Testament? I go with my Bible in hand, my list in hand, the identifying characteristics. I'm asking the Lord, tell me the identifying characteristics of your church. And I'm looking for a church whose name can be found in the pages of the New Testament. I'm looking for a church whose origin is found in the pages of the New Testament. I'm looking for a church whose organization and work and doctrine and practice is found in the pages of the New Testament. It's not a matter of what is the most popular. It does not matter what I like. One is not as good as another. I don't come running back and say, I found the right church, found the right church, got the right name. Oh, no, their doctrine's different, but it's got the right name, got to be the right church. 
That's not how you find the right church. And I want to tell you, as you're looking for a New Testament church, and maybe you're here tonight looking for a church, I want to find the true church. When you go to that church and you talk to the leaders of the church, and if you're a visitor here, here's the preacher sitting toward the front, David Bunny. There are four other men who are elders here. You walk up to these men and you'll ask them, can you show me in the Bible where what y'all teach and practice is found? They'll sit down with you and they'll study with you. But I want to tell you, there's churches all over this town. When you begin to ask the preacher, the pastor, the leaders, can you show me where in the Bible? And they won't sit down and talk with you. They won't welcome that open discussion. You've probably found the wrong church, I want to tell you. You're looking for a church that says, you know what? We'll be glad to talk to you about our name, our origin, our organization, our work, our doctrine, and our practice. Because we want to be the church that you find written in the pages of the New Testament. But furthermore, with that in hand, what does the answer demand of you? It demands that you leave and renounce denominationalism. We're not here tonight trying to sell you on one flavor over another. That's denominational within its concept. We're not here trying to tell you this church is better, just as good as another church. And we're encouraging you to leave. We're not trying to sell you a Chevy over a Ford or a Ford over a Chevy. What we're trying to tell you is there's one New Testament church. And if you're not in that church, you need to leave and renounce denominationalism. That's part of it. That's what the answer demands of you. What have we seen in our study tonight? Will only those in the church of Christ be saved is our question. We've tried to come to an understanding of what the question is. Why it's asked. What it's designed to do. But more importantly, we've tried to come to an understanding of what the answer is. And what that answer demands of us. That we be in the church in order to be saved. And that we leave and renounce denominationalism. It may be that you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God. Another way of wording that is you may not have received the grace of God. Another way of wording that would be you may not be a disciple yet. Another way of wording that is you may not have believed and turned to the Lord. Remember Acts 11? Another way of wording it, you may not be in the church of our Lord. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? And when you do that, you've believed and turned to the Lord. You received the grace of God. You're a Christian. You're a disciple. You were just added to the Lord's church. Would you respond even tonight? Would you come all together? We stand and while we sing.